The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon. This is Joe Schuldenrein calling from, uh, speaking to you rather, from Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We have talked in the past and in the recent past as well about a number of issues that are of increasing concern in the world of cultural heritage management, which, uh, for those of you in North America, corresponds to cultural resource management here in, in this part of the world. Cultural heritage in Europe has become very, very big, in uh, certainly over the past uh, 40 years, but most recently there is an increased awareness and an increased concern in uh, topics of conflict and the heritage of war and conflict in Europe. One of the items and one of the topics that's getting an especially strong emphasis recently, especially in uh, the low low countries, Belgium in particular, is the topic of World War I. Martin Brown is a hardly experienced archaeologist who has worked in the field of heritage management in curatorial and consultancy uh, roles. He's worked for national heritage bodies and central and local governments. After 10 years with the Ministry of Defense in the UK, he now works in archaeological consultancy for WYG.com. And his particular interests include landscape archaeology and conflict archaeology, as well as public engagement and outreach. He is a regular broadcaster on archaeological matters and is one of the most experienced archaeologists working in connection with the Great War, which is, of course, World War I that lasted from 1914 to 1918. He's led projects in France, Belgium, and in the UK that are connected to that conflict, including training sites, battlefield and support areas, and the unique unique terrain model of the Messine battlefield on Kennick Chase in Staffordshire. Martin is co-director of the Plug Street Project and a founding member of No Man's Land Archaeology Group. He's part of the historic environment team for defense estates and has been a professional archaeologist for over 20 years. His media work includes Time Team, which we've talked about before, uh, work on BBC Radio 4, 
Trench Detectives, Tales from the Grave, Weaponology, Ancestors, and Inside Out. And it is my pleasure to welcome Martin Brown to the program. Thank you for being here. It's a fantastic introduction. Thank you very much. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, I think one of the uh, items that I think is of interest to a lot of people who are listening to this program and who are generally concerned with contemporary archaeological issues is this entire question of, of uh, cultural heritage. Uh, and most recently, it's gotten a real uh, catapult and a vault, shall we say, uh, when we discuss things like... Uh, Western Europe in the early part of the 20th century. These are topics that obviously we've all been affected by because of the world wars, but uh, this one in particular has, uh, as as I've seen actually in a conference that I was at in Austria a few weeks ago, all of a sudden World War One is in the picture big time. But one of the questions I wanted to ha ask you in the beginning is how did you get into archaeology generally, heritage consultation, and then ultimately into World War I and battlefield studies. Wow. Um, <laughs> it's a lot, uh, I know. Yeah. Um, how did I get into archaeology? Well, that's, that's a, it's an interesting and unusual route. In the, um, I grew up in uh, Hull, which is a city on, in the northeast of England, and we, the city got bombed a bit in the um, Second World War. And in the late 1960s, they were still redeveloping bits of the town. And in the late 60s, early 70s, because there was rescue archaeology and people were digging holes. And I remember being quite young um, with, with, with my mum and looking over the fence and thinking, ooh, that looks fun. Um, and, and, and lo, it did. And, and about the same time, we, we went on family holidays where we'd go to castles and abbeys and things like that. And um, more or less the same sort of time, our next door neighbours, one of whom was a Belgian, um, bought me my first Asterix book. Um, you know the uh, the comic strips about uh, the the Gauls def uh, defending themselves against the Romans. And, yeah, uh, yeah, of course, yeah, that was very popular even here and on a topic that to a lot of people seemed fairly obscure. For for whatever reason, the Asterix uh, comics were very popular. That's right, and and I I think she she bought me them because this this is the, you know this is the early nineteen seventies. It's the period that Britain's um, going to join the European Community and uh, all that kind of thing. And, and all her kids were bilingual, and the little boy next door ought to be able to speak French and be bilingual as well. Um, and uh, yes, it was re it's been really valuable working in in France and Belgium to be able to speak French. But the other thing that she did unknowingly was really got me excited by Romans. And so I ended up doing a degree in, in largely Roman archaeology. Um, but did my first digging on medieval stuff, um, 13th, 14th century uh, monastic sites just up the road in the next town. And, um, yeah, then went off to Winchester and did a degree, uh, which was fantastic because we could, we could disappear off from, uh, if there weren't lectures on, and we could go and dig with the local field unit and get our hands dirty. Um, and so, so that that was that was that really. Um, I then went and did the traditional thing of, of, you know, digging holes for a living and being what you guys over your side call shovel bums. And right. um, I worked for the Museum of London, which was fab. Um, and after a while, decided that I wanted an indoor job with no heavy lifting. Um, and that's uh, <laughs> not quite true. But um, you didn't want to stay in the field and do regular excavation or that well, sort of thing. I love doing excavation, but I wanted to I wanted to do something a bit more. So, um, mm -hmm. took, took a job in Boston Original as opposed to Boston Mass. Um, partly doing development control, so the the the, the CRM side of of um, 
advising the planners on when development was happening, what, what digging needed to be doing, and partly doing an awful lot of work liaising with schools and local people and just getting people engaged and involved in their heritage, which was great fun. Um, it's, you know, I, I, I feel I owe an enormous debt to the people who gave up their weekends um, to let us go and excavate and to the, uh, the people who let a 14-year-old who turned up and said, can I help on your excavation, mister, uh, actually get involved and, and cut their teeth doing archaeology. And so, you know, it's one of the things that I've, I've, I still like to do. I still think it's really important. And, you know, um, it's more difficult to get people onto working commercial sites nowadays for very obvious good reasons but that means we just have to work that bit harder to do the the other sorts of engagement and outreach um, and when you did that um it opened up obviously a, a huge door for you and one that was probably just in its early developmental stages that kind of work um yes it was because i think up to that point that this is um late 80s up to that point through the 70s and earlier 80s it had been very much, um, it depended on the, the local unit doing the digging, whether the person in charge liked using volunteers, whether, they were, um, whether there was a local archaeological society you could get involved with, that sort of thing. And suddenly it, became, it started to become a bit more formalised, which um, was, was, quite, was, quite, was a thoroughly good thing, quite a lot of fun. So, yeah. But uh, English, this is, you're talking about English heritage, right? Uh, no, this was when I was with Boston council before that uh, then oh, I moved okay. to heritage. yeah that was um what i did then was spent an awful lot of time outside walking uh in the countryside which was a lovely job um doing designating sites for protection so we had a whole set of criteria against which we'd go we'd visit a site we'd talk to the landowners discuss with them whether designation would be an issue get their agreement um, if, if we were doing a new designation and then go out and do a, a rough field survey and then write up the documentation to go to take it forward for national protection. And this is the, you know, the, the sort of national 1% of monuments or whatever it was at the time. So right. I, I visited abbeys, prehistoric burial sites, um, great big linear earthworks from just pre-Roman period, all manner of, of, of really good things. And the nice thing about that job, apart from, apart from any of the other nice things, was it was in the area I grew up. So I was just exploring the archaeology that kind of had been in my back garden for uh, 25 years, and suddenly I, I actually got to go and see the bits that normally were behind fences and, and uh, you didn't get to. How were designations established at that time, and on what criteria? So designation was done on um, significance, basically, as it still is, and it's um, on the archaeological potential of the site, on the documentation for it in terms of work already done and historical documentation, if it was a historic period site, um, and uh, its survival and, and condition. So if you went to see a prehistoric burial mound and one had been heavily ploughed for 30 years and the one next door to it, in the other field had been preserved because that's where the uh, the sheep had been or whatever, then if you had to make the choice, you'd go for the one that uh, that the sheep had been grazing because it hadn't been ploughed and disturbed. So it was, it was those sort of value judgments. Yeah, no, it, was, it was good fun. And so then what happened after that? You you did that for a while, and uh, where then did you go from to, there? Well, then, then down to East Sussex, right down uh, on the south coast, Hastings, Brighton, um, based in the town of Lewis with its medieval priory remains and its, its Norman castle. And uh, I was working for the local authority down there, and my job there was basically that um, I provided the, the advice to the 
the developer, the commercial sector would come in and say, hey, we're, we're going to build a, a superstore or we're going to build houses here. And uh, what archaeology do we need to do? What, what, what are the issues? And so I would, I would work with them uh, to make sure that they complied with our planning legislation, our archaeology uh, policies, but at the same time that they didn't get um, an unreasonable amount of uh, a sort of work expected of them and that kind of thing. So I was doing that, and at the same time, I was doing an awful lot of outreach again. Um, one of the things that I did there was, in terms of cultural heritage in its broadest sense, myself and a, a storyteller worked, um, looking at the, land, the landscape as something, um, as a manufactured artifact with um, ideas around, mm. sort of pertaining to it. So I would go out and do the, the archaeology and say, look at all these lumps and bumps, and, and this is what they mean. And then she would um, work with local legends and uh, develop stories out of the landscape, some, some of which really related to the sites we were on and others which were, were, were pertinent. And we'd do a whole kind of... Uh, we, did, we did several years of taking people out and doing this sort of, um, this is your landscape and this is what it means, this is how it came to look this way and this is what people have thought about it over you know, some hundreds of years. Um, an interesting question here, I think, that uh, I'm just curious, you're talking about working in Sussex, Hastings area, uh, was that when your interest in battlefield and historic conflict archaeology began, the story of the Battle of Hastings and the fact that there are a number of such sites out in that part of the UK? It kind of did. Um, I knew that. I've, well, I've been interested already because I grew up on, as I said, I grew up on the, on, on the sort of northeast coast and we had an awful lot of defences there from the Second World War, just, just in case. Um, of course. But, um, but, yeah, going down to Hastings, you've got the, the famous 1066 battle at Hastings, Lewis, where I live. We had a 1264 battle, which um, no one ever remembers, but it's actually quite important in terms of Parliament being called for the first time properly at the end of it. Um, ah. But... Uh, we had lots of defences, lots of training sites for the First World War um, because it was convenient for, for troops just shipping off to France. And about the same time that I was starting to get interested in the, uh, the archaeology of, of defence and of conflict at home, my uncle produced my grandfather's pocketbook uh, recording his three years in the Royal Army Medical Corps from 1915 through to the very early 1919 when uh, he, he was discharged and he did... He did Western Front. He did, you know, he he did Passchendaele. He did Arras. Um, he was on the Somme for the Second Battle of the Somme, um, not the famous 1916 one, and and had a fairly. Um, interesting and, and from what you can glean reading between the lines in his diary of, you know, as you imagine being a medic, a pretty traumatic war. I decided, as an awful lot of people have done. Uh, in this situation, I wanted to go off in the car with a map and trundle around and see where Grandad had been. I never knew him; he died before I was born um, in the in the late fifties. And um, lo and behold, I discovered that there were there were people out there, um, John Price in particular, who's a, a good mate, who were doing archaeology, just beginning to do the first archaeology on the sites out there and looking at at the landscapes of of 1914 through 18 in an archaeological manner rather than as, as history. Um, so, yeah, yeah was, that was it. And, and, and that, was, uh, that was my downward sl slide, really. And so that got you going. How, uh, wh what kind of documentation were there, was there in those records that you were looking at from your, your grandfather? 
for, for Grandad, literally, it's a small pocketbook. It's the sort of thing that would fit into the breast pocket of, um, of the army tunic. And he writes two lines a day. You know, it's, it's a very brief, laconic diary. It's, um, but he, he usually says where they are. Um, if they're working with a particular um, unit in their division, so King's Liverpool's or uh, West Yorkshire's, he'll mention that. There are quite often comments about uh, the quality of their officers. Um, and, uh, and every now and again, you get a real gem. Um, there, is, there is the moment, first time I was reading it, when I thought, that's me nearly not here. Uh, where he says that they, uh, the classic thing of we, 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 we set up in a shell hole waiting to receive casualties. We moved a shell landed where we'd just been. Um, and the other one is late 1918 as the Germans are collapsing. And he says, uh, oh, somebody brought in a German boy um, as a casual, a wounded. And he said, um, it's, it's an ab- absolute shame that they're bringing in, that, that they're putting young boys like that, those are his words, young boys like that into the line. And obviously this is, you know, the, that 1918 thing where the, the German army's been decimated and they're, they're left with the, the old and bold and the, uh, the young drafts. And Grandad had a, you know, there's this real moment of humanity where the uniform doesn't matter. All right. um, and that was fascinating. But then equally, you get things like, um, he says, oh, we're at, uh, I forget the name of the village, we're at this village uh, in the Somme Valley, in the rear area, uh, in, the, in the grounds of the chateau. And so we, we trundled off in the car to have a look at the chateau. And the gates are there. Uh, the chateau itself was demolished in, in the interwar period. Um, but on the, uh, on the gatepost, there's bits of graffiti, uh, obviously bored uh, sentries writing, uh, writing their initials and, uh, and dates. So there was a very nice 1916 carved into the gatepost. And you just think, it's not him, it, it's, yeah. but it's a little link with people who were doing, who were doing the job. Of course. We will be back with our very fascinating interview with uh, Martin Brown after these words. Please stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com What kind of world do you want to live in? Should we continue down our current path, or is there a better way? Together, we can change the world. We must start with ourselves, then we can future-proof our homes, businesses, and communities. Many people don't realize it, but most of our society's biggest problems can be solved using current technology. My name is Shane Wolf, and I want to help you understand what you can do right now to make a difference while saving money, reducing your environmental impact, and improving the health of yourself and the people around you. Join me for Future Proof Radio, and let's build a better world. Tuesdays at 4 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Boomers Rock Radio with Tom Mack is ready to entertain, enlighten, and educate. Our show is all about quality of life, fitness, mental health, nutrition, self-improvement, finance, and more. As you grow older, you may actually have more questions. Tom is here to help. He'll invite experts from many facets of health, business, and life to bring the answers to you. Make Boomers Rock Radio your weekly stop on the Voice America Variety Channel every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific. Join us and improve your life. Think of the world. 
50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and today we are discussing the archaeology and cultural heritage components of World War I battlefields in Europe, in Western Europe in particular, um, with Dr. Martin Brown, who is uh, one of the principal archaeologists doing that type of research. He's based in the UK, but has done extensive work on the continent. Uh, Martin, let me ask you this. Uh, World War I, obviously, to, to most people who have any familiarity with that period of time, was noted for trench warfare and those enormous trenches that became the staple of military strategy at that time. How does one go about examining the archaeology of a battlefield that probably has been extensively redone since those trenches were originally excavated by the uh, by the people who were actually engaged in the conflict. Ha, very carefully. Um, I would imagine. I, I, yeah. I, I say that um, because these are these are hot battlefields. Still, they are full of live munitions, and so we don't we never dig holes without having. Um, Actually, I've got some very good friends who are either serving or ex-military who have done this for their job and, uh, and, and are very good archaeologists as well. So, um, right. Yeah. But, but that's, that, that aside, how do you do it? It's what makes life very easy um, in terms of this is that the, the front was mapped and mapped and remapped by both sides so that they always had accurate, up-to-date, detailed survey, partly for operations on the ground but mostly to, to guide artillery because the artillery are doing indirect fire they're a long way back in the rear they can't see what they're firing at so it's all done by by map and compass and uh, and, and and in the way that modern artillery is so there's an awful lot of that and that's done by flying so there are loads of air photos and if you go to the imperial war museum they've got boxes and boxes of aerial photographs in london and if you go to the national archives at kew there are wonderful collections of trench maps um uh-huh. now that then raises the question of why are we bothering? Don't we know it all? No. Um, you, what you can see there is is you know you can do historic map regression the same as you could do for an, any any sort of traditional archaeological site, where you you look at your trench maps for 1918 or whenever and and you you look back through the sheets and you see what's come, mm-hmm. what's gone, 
um, and how things have developed. So, for instance, um, on the uh, on the Somme battlefields, you see how the, the, the front moves or doesn't move initially, how it then, uh, towards the end of the, the 1916 battle, there are British advances, then how the Germans come back in 1918 and there's a second battle and then they're pushed back again. So this is constantly being remapped. Maps uh, show where the front lines go, the trenches are coloured differently for the two sorts of uh, the two sides. But... Um, that gives you a nice big picture, but it's that standard thing of no map is entirely accurate. So when you get onto the ground, you're looking at all the little individual things that were done, the additions, the um, the adaptations, all of that. You look at how they worked with the ground they had. You look at um, what they do that is and isn't like the um, manuals. There are lots of there are lots of trench manuals produced by all the armies, um, and sometimes they're great and they're really helpful. And sometimes they, you know damn well from what you see in the in 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 the holes that they've looked that they've not bothered. You know that it's too wet, it's too sticky, or the or the stone. Uh, you you know you're working you're working in a rocky area, whatever. So so that's all fascinating, um, and you're also then basically then trying to repopulate. And that's that's when it becomes fascinating because these these people are are yes they're soldiers but they're not just ciphers in uniform each one of those is an individual person and individual of people course. do they do stuff and they leave things and they lose things and and they they carve in the chalk and uh, all manner of peculiarities so and that's that's where you step from beyond doing sort of historical geography into pro, into archaeology proper. And that's a very interesting interface because I think that at this point in time, it doesn't really matter what kind of archaeology you're doing. The question of physical geography becomes a very, very important component. And I would say that that's probably very, very critical in places like Western Europe and World War One, where these landscapes currently have no bearing whatsoever or in many cases don't have any similarity to what they looked like in 1914. And when you're doing this kind of work and you're actually utilizing the maps, uh, I guess what one of the things you'd have to do would be to reconstruct the changing landscape since 1918 and bring it up to speed which uh, for about 100 years. And is that one of the processes that you do when you uh, undertake this kind of work? Totally. Um one of the, it, the 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 process is fascinating because of course you get very rapid in some cases landscape change over four years in um how should i say um in concentrated bursts so you know this a hundred years ago today um in the area that we've been looking at in belgium we know mm -hmm. that there are troops digging in um, for the early part of the war, literally from August to October, there's been a mobile war. They've been both sides have been chasing each other around Belgium in a, in a, in a way that really Wellington would have recognised. Um, mm. Okay, there's, there's 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 some aeroplanes have been thrown into the picture, but not very many, and there are some motor lorries. But basically, give or take, it's it's a war that Wellington would have been familiar with. Then they then they both grind to a halt and they start to dig and what we found um is sometimes you can see where a ditch has been deepened or individual fire trenches have been dug um and in other times you can see how 
there's there's been a, a line of trench that you know is there in fourteen, and it carries on through the war, and you just get an indication of where they started to throw little fire bays and fire positions forward. Um, cartridges are wonderful things. The bottom of a cartridge, British and German, uh, will have a date on it. And if you've got 1914 dated cartridges in your um, upcasts and in, in your construction for trenches, you, you can be pretty sure you're dealing with 14-date activity because they run out of ammunition. You know, they, 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 they use all of their 13 and 14 stockpiles pretty quickly. Right. Um, so you can see you can see that, and yes, there are a lot of areas where it's overshadowed by what happens later on with Germans building concrete bunkers and things. But you get these glimpses of fourteen, and then to to go back to your, I suppose your original question when you were saying you have to reconstruct what happens afterwards, that's fascinating as well because our locals are the the the, the ancestors of of our friends in, in in our study area in Belgium, they come back to a a sort of mess of sticky poisoned porridge with unexploded munitions and dead people in it and they you go there today and unless you knew you wouldn't know if you see what i mean um they work very hard in the interwar years they they do things like break up the um german concrete bunkers and make and, and you know we have no roads but what we've got in 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 this big concrete bunker is all the raw materials to remake the road um we we, we have no houses so they, they salvage um material like the uh, corrugated iron sheets used by both sides to make temporary houses until the americans send um kit form prefabricated huts um classic yes of course yeah which is fantastic, and there's, you can see one uh, reconstructed now at, uh, at Zonnebecker at the museum. You walk through their reconstructed trenches, and you come out, and the, the, the last exhibit in the outdoor area is, is one of the barrack, as they called them, these, um, these, these prefab houses, uh, which were, were gifts from the States. So, yeah. Well, um, you know, it's, it's fantastic. I think one of the, one of the questions that I, I'm certainly very interested in is trying to essentially compare the archaeological perspective, if you will, between what you what you'd be likely to come across in, let's say, a classic uh, trench warfare site, like in some, and mm -hmm. what we used to, what we typically find in Civil War sites in the United States, which basically predate the World War One. Uh, battlefields by about half a century, by 50 years. And one of the things that North Americans and people doing archaeology in this part of the world established way back when they started doing Civil War archaeology was that the types of things that one would expect to find in a typical site really are not what you actually find. For example, over the years, uh, and immediately following the conflict, some of the most obvious data are uh, were collected by scavengers and people who uh, simply wanted to pick up old hats, uniforms, obviously mm -hmm. removal of corpses and bodies. And some of the elements that are most striking on a battlefield site are structural elements, elements that you don't ne necessarily uh, associate with the battlefield, but turn out to be the most important thing. For example, in the Civil War era, corrugated roads, uh, wood-lined roads, and and uh, 
pathways that were used for moving artillery in and out were the things that really pretty much stayed intact. What would you expect to find in a trench warfare site during World War I, and what do you actually find, and how do you go about doing it? Yeah, I think that's a really good analogy. Um, and and the obvious things, if, if you talk to people who've been going over there for a long time, that they will tell you that, yeah, they remember seeing helmets in the woods at Verdun and, um, and, 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 and uh, in Mametz on the Somme and things, and they've all gone now. And they have. And yes, some of those iconic objects are the things that vanish. Rusty rifles, helmets, all those kind of right. things. Actually, to an extent, you know, we, we know that every British soldier from 1916 onwards is issued a Brodie helmet. We know that every British soldier has a short magazine Lee Enfield rifle. It's, it's fine. What's great are the things that at the time, and more recently people have got more interested in, in, in the, the sort of ephemera, but actually those are the things that, um, that have survived quite well and that, that really interest us because it's things like um, the bottles, you know, you, you find enormous amounts of bottles of uh, HP saw, brown sauce. Um, is this translating at all? I don't know. Do you have brown sauce in the US? I don't know. Um, no, just, no, we don't. No, no, no. No, it's, I don't yeah, think you, so. no, it's like um, it's the same. It's like a tomato ketchup, but it's a sort of brown fruity sauce. And it's um, you get enormous amounts of, of these bottles, and it's, it tells you something magnificent. It tells you that the British Army diet is good. Nutritious, solid, keeps right. you going, you. And my God, it's boring. Ah. Um, just because what what can we do to make this corned beef and biscuit or stew in a tin edible? I'll oh, just bung some bung some brown sauce in it. At least it'll it'll you know spark it up a bit and give. It's got chilies in it, and it's you know modern British troops and and having having learnt from uh, our American allies in their twenty four hour ration packs now always have bottles of Tabasco. Right. And it's the same. It's, this is 1914 equivalent. Yeah, um, of course, yeah. Same thing. We found uh, Emo's fruit salts. And uh, anyone who's seen the Mel Gibson um, Gallipoli movie will know this product. Of course. Um, and yeah, and it's, um, it, it's for the upset stomach. And uh, that again tells you something. It tells you that the food's good and nutritious, but sometimes the tins of corned beef have been left out in the sun or things aren't quite as, you know as um hygiene's not maybe what it should be and um, really? you really don't want anything like that yeah any of us who've been digging it's horrible if it happens to you on site my god you don't want it to happen to you in a trench where um actually we know from written records that sometimes the german soldiers did um their snipers went out and would, would work out where the trench latrines were and would wait and see if they could target people because they knew that was when people were were more bothered about the matter in hand rather than um keeping their heads down right now, my guess is that based on the aerial photographs and the surviving maps of the battlefields, which I am assuming were indexed into ben to benchmarks and uh, topographic markers or, or landmarks, many of which yeah. are probably gone, but I'm guessing that there are a few that are still left, so that your ability to actually superimpose surviving features on original features is probably pretty good good and um you were probably and i'm assuming because we do this in the states a lot in money those sites is you probably run some kind of a ground penetrating radar survey to identify the anomalies in the subsurface and to take a look at where these trenches might have been is that how it yeah, works correct. the the maps are all put onto the um 
pre-war survey base. So they show sometimes by, by the sort of middle and the end of the war, the map, the map base shows what was not there because the villages had all been shelled out and things like that. But um, what happens is that by and large people come back and they rebuild what was there before. So the roads uh, more or less stay in the same place. On the Somme we found that the field boundaries were very, very carefully put back exactly where they were so that everybody got the land that they'd had before and there was no funny business about, uh, here, I had a good field over there, why have you got it now? Um, <laughs> so you've got that. <laughs> right. And, and so, you know, they rebuilt the church where the church was because the crypt may have survived even if the, um, even if the superstructure is gone, things like that. So that's all good. Um, and so you can do that, that, that sort of tying back really well. And yes, it's fantastic for using geophysical survey. We've, um, my, my colleague Peter has done enormous amounts of survey uh, with a magnetometer across uh, parts of the battlefields. And, you know, you, because they're using things like um, corrugated iron, to line the trenches oh, or metal yeah, kits. Uh... They light up like, like nobody's business, and it's fantastic. But when you get some trenches that haven't, aren't giving you that quite that zingy signal, but you can see them there as, as, a, as an anomaly, then that's giving you a difference between whether they've been wood-lined, whether they've been corrugated iron-lined, sometimes whether they're, um, if they're looking a bit indistinct, whether they've been just blown in and battered and not repaired, um, and all that kind of thing. So... That's fantastic. What, what we haven't used a great deal of is GPR yet. Um, and I do have one quite deep German position, which we really do need to go and have a look at that with that. And um, some underground barracks, basically, that were cut into the side of a hill by British troops and, and used by Australians just before the Battle of Messines in 1917. Uh, we'll be back with our very fascinating discussion with uh, Martin Brown from the UK and a former associate of the Ministry of Defense over there and an expert on World War I archaeology right after these messages. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. A nice glass of wine is very refreshing after the end of a long day. But have you ever considered the story behind the wine? Tune in to Bacchus and Beery Wine Radio with your hosts, Roger and Donna Beery. You'll meet some of the people behind the world's wineries, travel the wine country, and learn more about that glass that you're enjoying. Roger and Donna will also give would-be vintners a behind-the-scenes look at starting a winery. Bacchus and Beery Wine Radio airs live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you are a dreamer aspiring to realize your dreams, join host Michael Friedlander for Dreamers, Winners, and Making a Difference. For Michael, to be a winner doesn't mean you must have finished first. 
or must have great wealth, fame, and lots of toys. Instead, it means you must have realized your dreams without cheating or acting unethically. It means you must have made a difference for the better in the lives of those you've touched. Tune in to Dreamers, Winners, and Making a Difference live every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We're back with our final segment on uh, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and my guest for this afternoon evening is uh, Dr. Martin Brown, who is a uh, archaeologist specializing in cultural heritage programs and a specialist in World War I archaeology. Martin, one of the questions that I would like to pose to you, and I, I, I think it's something that a lot of people would be interested in, is uh, specifically what are we learning archaeologically from the World War I battles, battlegrounds and battlefields that we can't really pick up from a combination of very specific and focused historic record documentation, aerial photographs, and simply accounts. What kind of data sets and uh, interpretive material are we getting that we really didn't know about, given the tremendous volume of documentation that exists for that period? There's a really good example from Ocean Vier on the Somme, where I worked with John Price and Alistair Fraser back um, crumbs 2000. And one of, the, one of the questions there was, how far did the German spring offensive get? We, we know that they recapture a lot of ground, they, they break through the British front line. And, of course, because the British army's in, in a state of collapse, um, on that first day we don't know how far they get we don't know what the defence of some of the villages was like and at Oceanville we, we found very definite this, this is you know this is, this is Doug Scott and Little Bighorn stuff um, yeah. very definite yeah. dispersal of cartridges right. of German right. 1918 date up to a certain point on the road and no further um, Oceanville does not fall and we know exactly how far the Germans got because we now know we, we, you know, we we now know where their firing line was. So that's a, that's a very sort of obvious historical question answered. Um, similarly, you know, a hundred years ago today, as, as I said earlier, the, the idea of everybody's digging in, um, where are they doing it? What are they doing? It's all a bit sketchy at the time because they're doing it on the hoof almost. Um, and and what are they doing? You know, unless there happen to be a few photographs kicking around, and of course men were not supposed to take cameras into the line, you don't really know what they're getting up to. So those will those will give you that. In terms of the big picture, you know, the the big story of the battles, fine. Um, no, but 
one of the things that I've been really, really interested in in my work in, in, in UK on this subject is training. Because if, you, if I went out to the office now um, and stopped people on the streets of Bristol and said, how much training did soldiers in the First World War get? An awful lot of them would probably say nothing or not very much because there is this, um, oh, what a lovely war, Blackadder uh, image that uh, people were stuffed into a uniform and then pushed off to the front to be, um, to be led by donkeys to certain death. And actually, you have to remember that, the, that the, the Allied forces won the war against what everybody considered to be the greatest army of the period. Um, and you don't do that without training. You know, if you've read your Vegetius or your Sun Tzu, um, you've got to train soldiers. And there are miles of practice trenches in this country, uh, with dugouts and gun positions, and there's gas training, and there are all sorts of things that um, people didn't know was going on. So it's an outreach point. It's quite important. It's a public education point. But also in terms of the, the records are not brilliant. You know, the, there's a the camp on Cannock Chase I've been looking at, where they say, uh, oh, we've got we've got thirty six thousand troops up there. Coincidentally, in, including a, a young officer called Tolkien. Um, We've got 36,000 troops up here and we're training them. Um, and then they all go off on trains and, and, and they go to, go to the war. And the records don't survive for what they were doing. The fact that you can get out on the ground and you can find out that they were digging very good quality trenches, including sections of almost replica battlefield, to practice the whole gamut of how to live, work and fight in trenches and, most importantly, how to maintain them, um, that's fascinating and that's something that the books don't tell you. If you've read your Sassoon, for instance, um, right. or he, he, he wants to talk about the war. Um, he doesn't, none of them talk about training very much because either if you were there, you know you did it, or if you are reading it as a, as a post-war reader who's interested in what happened and what, what, what your elder brother or daddy did, um, they tend to think you're probably not interested in that because it's not the exciting stuff with bangs. And someone like Sassoon has, has a an axe to grind and an angle to take with his book. And, and I think he says in his reference to training in one of his books is, um, you know, a rather dismissive comment about bayonet training, but at no point um, do most of the, uh, the sort of the authors writing at the period talk about the good quality training they were getting. I mean, Remark does in All Quiet. Um, he's right. again very rude right. about All the quiet. sadistic corporal. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, I've excavated the German practice trenches uh, where they were practicing live fire, with with mortar uh -huh. um and whether that's what, what i don't know is whether that's to train the mortar crews or whether it's actually to put troops into the trenches and fire over their heads to get them used to the idea of bangs going off because you know it's i remember my first day working for the ministry of defense where we had we had a live artillery range near the office and no one was trying to kill me and that was a bit um <laughs> it was a bit startling um right. so for, for, for lads who've you know turned up having been tram drivers in Munich or whatever to suddenly be in this in this strange world, they get they get training in 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 trench warfare and that's fantastic. One of the elements of that it is uh, after all we neglected to mention this, but m probably most people know it is the 100th anniversary of World War One. Um, one of the huge historical surprises I think that uh, people I don't think anticipated is the incredible loss of life 
that occurred in that conflict. It was, in fact, the Great War. What uh, is the archaeology and the research that your groups are finding uh, giving us in terms of identifying the extent of that catastrophe, anything that we're finding in terms of geospatial information that's uh, providing some interpretive material in that count? Um, <laughs> yeah. That's a um, the, 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 the scale of loss and the traumatic impact and indeed the manner of loss, which, which feeds back into that, um, that trauma, um, are fascinating. And, and you can see that. I mean, yes, I have worked on um, complete burials in, in, on the battlefield um, where people were buried by their mates and then just lost. They were, they were never recovered um, right. after the war. So but to all intents and purposes, those guys are missing. Um, and, and, you know, one of the great privileges has been in a few cases giving people back to their families um in other cases yeah n no because they tend to be they are buried more or less where where they fell um we right, you you, but you you have a great culture of repatriation and and until very very recently we haven't done that um right and the germans don't so um so our australian uh, friends have their great uncle in Belgium, so they don't get to see him as much as we do, but we always make them <laughs> the point of going to say hello on their behalf. Um, this is the point at which it, I usually say to me, like, this isn't like doing the Romans. Um, but, um, right. yeah, but the other thing to say is that, that because it's an industrial war with heavy artillery and mine uh, warfare and all that kind of thing, you get the real insight into that where, um, you know, we, we, we've done areas of uh, upcast from the mines where the biggest piece of human bone you had was half a heel bone um, and the soil was just flecked with bone bone matter and artifacts and the artifacts actually were more of an indicator of the people because it was per some of it was personal effects um, and you know if if you want that indication of what the effect was like and why every town has a war memorial and why you go to somewhere like the Menin Gate and there are just the great lists, like the Vietnam Wall, the great lists of men who have no known grave, right. then really that, that is it. It's, it's the fact that people get lost or people are literally um, blown to bits. Um, and it's, it's, very, it's very sobering and it really does bring a, an, an understanding to something of how our grandparents and great-grandparents' generations were um, in, in their reaction to commemoration and memorialization. In terms of public outreach and trying to, in some ways, resuscitate an interest in this amazing conflict, what kind of approaches are you taking and are you finding a great interest in that kind of revival. I know that for a lot of Americans who go to Europe for the first time, there is an amazement about the fact that there is such a strong residual World War II consciousness in almost mm -hmm. every single country in Europe, including Eastern Europe, clearly, as well as Western Europe. But World War I 
too far in the background at this point. Are we seeing a revival of interest? And in your cultural heritage and outreach projects, are you starting to see a, a reawakening? Because clearly there are no survivors from that period. And uh, what, are we, what, are we, what are we doing here? Oh, totally. Um, I, if I get asked somewhere to give a talk, I was asked to... Um, I was at a lecture a couple of weeks ago to a county archaeological society uh, as part of a day conference they were doing. At the end of it, um, there were three people who came up and said, I love what you're doing. How do I get to come and dig with you? Wow. Um, it, yeah. You, you know, this, that there is a, um, it, it is an amazingly uh, evocative subject in that it is you, – it is outside of living memory, but only just. Um, it is yeah. very present. Yes, that's right. Um, and and I think that gives it an immediacy. And and when I was working for um, for Ministry of Defence, I could talk about any any amount of medieval and Roman archaeology. But when I said I did this stuff, the people that I worked for, the soldiers, uh, would be instantly engaged because it's something they understood it's 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 their culture it's their tribe um in terms of in terms of outreach otherwise though i mean one of one of the things that we've been really proud of doing in uh, in belgium at plugsteer where we've been working is that we've engaged with local people um they that, that we've we've had local people digging with us we've engaged with their museum and their historical society um as part for exhibitions for uh, material for film for their uh, visitor center and and all of that kind of thing, and that's been great. And the Canic Chase project that you mentioned, uh, we had something like um, we had 150 volunteers plus over that. Um, we had over a thousand volunteer hours of time um, over the project. We 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 had yeah, people came to dig. Um, one guy didn't want to come and dig, but he flies a plane locally, so he came and took us some fantastic air photographs. Um, wow. We, we and and even more bizarrely, we had a chap turned up with his wife one day. He said, um, "I'm really uh, I'm really not fit enough to dig. She wants to do it. That's brilliant. Um, would you like me to play my accordion?" Uh, and I, 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 yeah, this this is community archaeology on its uh, uh, in, in a very bizarre way. But I said, um, oh, that's, "That's fascinating. Um, that that that's that's great. Um, you know, uh, I, that that would be fine." But you know, and he said, "Oh well, I, I have the accordion that was played on Armistice Day in Cannock." He said, "I can't bring that out because it's now not really fit for playing anymore." But I'll happily bring bring my instrument tomorrow, and and he did. And so for a couple of hours across lunchtime, we had tunes that the guys who were on that camp nearly a hundred years ago would have known, would have sung, would have recognised. Um, and and it was just a real, you know, if if you want. No, not phenomenological. What's the word? Experiential archaeology. My goodness, that was it. Um, <laughs> including in playing Wooden Heart, which, of course, some of your listeners will know originally is a German, um, a German, a German uh, folk song. So uh, both sides, because there were German prisoners there as well but, uh, in 17, both sides were represented in the tunes. So it, do, are people engaged with it? Yes. Does it excite them? Yes. Um, and it's not just mad Brits. Uh, I think once the, particularly in, in Belgium where we've been working, once they realised that we were interested in the whole narrative from 1914 through to 19, well, let's say 1930 with the, the great reconstruction as well, they wanted to engage with us very much because we, we weren't, you know, I've been very explicit in saying for, 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 for 
the people in these trenches, the war ends on the 11th of November, 1918. For the people who, in the land who's, where these trenches were dug, that's when their war starts, because yeah. they've got to make it home again. And, and they do, and they're hugely proud of it. And I guess one of the questions I would would like to close with, uh, we only have a couple of minutes left, is where are your outreach efforts extending right now? What do you see as one of the promising missions of outreach in this centennial of World War World War One? <laughs> Crikey, um, it's being able to reach an amazing audience because people's consciousness of the war is uh, obviously massive because it's uh, it's all over the um, the media at the moment it's um, I think our Prime Minister promised that every school would have an opportunity to do a battlefield tour it mm. means that when when you get to uh, talk to people they they you're they're meeting you halfway already so and and there is that amazing tangibility of stuff when you produce artifacts um and and you know they say oh, we we went there but we never saw anything like this and, and they can hold one of these sauce bottles in their hands and you can explain the story that's great but i think the other thing that's fascinating is in terms of the outreach is that's the public engagement but there's also the almost i suppose in reach um into the profession that 10 years ago I, I was uh, talking about this stuff and people were looking at us all a bit strangely. Um, and I think now, you know, you look at the amount of field work that's being done in Britain on training sites um, and, and you see that, yeah, actually we've had a real effect there that people are now regarding this rather than being something recent and modern, they're regarding it as part of the archaeological heritage. And I think that's, that's really important and valuable. And with that, I'm afraid we're going to have to conclude the broadcast. I want to thank Martin Brown for taking the time out to speak with us on this fascinating topic on battlefield archaeology and the Great War and to familiarize our, us with the types of efforts that are going to probably be increasing in frequency as we start talking about more recent 20th century heritage um, both in Europe and elsewhere across the world. Martin, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much. And until next time, we will see you with another broadcast of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.